Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And as you find that, if you would like, those who are quick might also want to put a little bulletin. Plenty, we give you plenty of things to, from our bulletin of stuff to, in Mark places. Uh, but into Hosea chapter 6, which we'll be using for illustration purposes uh, this morning. But our primary text is uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This morning we come to the end of our fall series, Rhythms and Roots. We began this series with a desire to encourage the development of spiritual formation through the continual acknowledgement or recognition that our need to be rooted in the promises of the gospel of the kingdom of God. They were to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. In other words, the righteousness of Christ that we are beneficiaries of rather than seeking first to be simply good. And then there are certain practices that we are commanded to participate in in the Scriptures, but when we take things as commands, sometimes we either check them off through mere participation as if we've accomplished something, or we can feel overwhelmed at the amount of things required of us, looking at our lives and realizing we're already very busy. How would we do this? So we chose the word rhythm because we cultivate a pattern of, pra- of practices in our lives. My hope is that these have not simply informed you, but that you can take these and look at your own life and realize there are certain things that each of us needs to do, and that there is a gift and a blessing in resting on God, on, in God's grace on His day, or in being served by Christ continually, or serving others Throughout this, there's things that we build into our lives. They may be daily rhythms, they may be weekly rhythms, but there should be a rhythm that we recognize as we practice these things. And through them, we are further rooted in the gospel of the kingdom. We come to our final one today, the rhythm of repenting, which I know sounds kind of like a bummer as we're going into Thanksgiving week, uh, but my hope is by the time we're done this morning, Uh, that you would realize that this is a beautiful gift that has been given to us as well, uh, that actually is a means towards joy uh, rather than of feeling poorly. Before we come to our word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do come to you with thanksgiving that you have not left us to wonder, but have revealed yourself in the person of Christ and recorded in detail Uh, what we may understand of you through him and understand of ourselves. Father, as we consider the word given to us this morning, we pray that you would be at work, opening our minds and hearts to bring encouragement as well as correction, that we might find the joy in you and the joy of life in you. Bless us, Lord, in this time that we would hear your voice, that we may be strengthened and built up even together towards full maturity in Jesus Christ. This is our desire, and this is your plan for us. We pray that you would do that, your work in us this hour. We pray in Christ. Amen. Mark chapter 1. As Mark does very concisely, he moves into his particular beginning, um, and Jesus has already come forward, been baptized, recognized by, uh, by others as the promised Messiah. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, has continued on as they parted. John continued to do his ministry until he was arrested. And at the pond, Jesus, uh, John's arresting, Jesus came in really full-blown and, and to his ministry. And we come now to hear Jesus' message at the very outset of his ministry. 
Mark 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from His holy word. David Black was an experienced and accomplished pilot. It wasn't just a hobby, but it actually had become his career. His job as a pilot was not to shuttle people back and forth, but he was actually a firefighter in the air. He was a, what they call a, a water bomber. The ones that are called upon when there is a forest fire or a brush fire that is beginning to get out of control and it can't be handled from the ground alone. They call pilots who take their planes filled with a uh, storage of water over to the uh, center of it or the, uh, the, the uh, important place and dumping their load in order to, if not extinguish, to minimize the fire so that it can be dealt with uh, by the firefighters who are on the ground. He'd been doing this for a long time and had done this job very well. And yet, according to the AP, tragically, on October 24, 2013, just over a year ago, David Black, while carrying out his job, was tragically killed as his plane crashed into the ground into the middle of a fire. What witnesses indicate or reported through to the AP was that those who saw said that as he was flying, as he was carrying his load, one of his wings flew off the side of the plane, his left wing, causing the plane to tilt to the left and crash straight into the ground and killing him upon the impact. Experts later on said that a preliminary examination indicated that the left outboard wing's lower attachment lug had fractured through an area of pre-existing fatigue, cracking in the lug, the lower ligament, causing the wing to detach while in flight. Now, for a few of you who fly, you get the whole language. And my knowledge of this says basically the nut that was holding the plane together on the lower part had been worn out, had been fractured, cracked. And that with the stress that is placed on the wing and therefore on the nut while he was flying in this particular flight, the, thing, the, the nut broke, which then made the wing not have the full stability it needs to be attached to the plane. And then the pressure of the air ripped the, uh, the, the wing off of the airplane, causing the tragedy of his crash. And the reason that the story seems pertinent to me, at least as I look at it, is it's a reminder of something that you don't need to be an aeronautical expert to, to understand. We all implicitly recognize that even the best of pilots cannot fly their plane with only one wing. The reason that's pertinent to us is because the, the great Puritan, Thomas Watson, speaking of the Christian life, declares to us that faith and repentance are the two wings by which we fly toward heaven. Now I suspect, both in my interactions and just my observations, certainly not scientific, that by and large we do okay with our faith wing. People go to church, whether it's an evangelical church or some other kind of church, most people go to church for the purpose of strengthening their faith. They're seeking to, some sort of supplement to their faith. We need to be careful about what our faith is in. Sociologists, 
Christian Smith, his study of present-day evangelical Christians, has come to the conclusion that what is passing for faith, even in evangelical churches today, he uses the phrase, it looks more like something that you would label therapeutic, moralistic therapeutic deism than historic Christianity. What he means by that is that most people, if you were to ask them, even most people in churches have a belief in God. Their knowledge of God is relatively limited or could be all over the place, but they just believe there is a God who exists. And they believe that the purpose of God is to serve our needs, to help us to feel better about ourselves so that, and to become better people so that we can live better lives here on this earth. The reason that's catchy is because it's not entirely false. There is a God who has revealed himself, and he does deal with us in, as we, uh, with where we are. And by his grace, he exposes the brokenness within us, and through being exposed and being reminded of who we are in Christ, we do recognize a new identity, one that is far better than what we would have had if we just muster ourselves. And the result of that faith, it's the Scripture tells us over and again, and many of us have experienced, is we're no longer the people that we were. While we continue to be broken, nevertheless, over time, there seems to be some progress. We're not quite as bad as we were sometime before. And yet, the moralistic, therapeutic deism mindset does tend to weaken the faith. They're interviewing a number of people, asking of their concept of God that believe more in this way. They believe that while there is a God, they're not specific about what God is like, and that God is available at any time. He's kind of like a butler or your therapist. He's available when you call, but he doesn't butt in at other times. So the idea of a sovereign God is lost on many people. But even people who will fall into that category, they still are seeking to supplement their faith when they are going to church or to any spiritual endeavor. We are very conscious of our need for faith. But I don't think that repentance is quite the same. Whether our faith wing is shaky or stable, it is nevertheless present. But for most people that I encounter, really for most of my life, the repentance wing is at best shaky, if it's present at all. In one sense, it, it makes sense, at least logically, because we associate repentance with sin, don't we? I mean, it makes sense. Otherwise, if there is no sin, there's nothing to repent of. And since we associate it sin, with sin, and we know sin is something that we are not supposed to do and should avoid engaging in, Sin should be minimized, and so therefore repentance should be minimized, right? And so therefore, when we think of repentance, at least logically speaking, repentance should be something that we recognize it's beneficial to have there, but you should use as minimally as possible, kind of like antibiotics or itch cream. I mean, every once in a while, it's necessary, you hate it, but you're glad it's there when you need it. And again, while this is erroneous, it's not totally illogical and it's not totally unbiblical except that it minimizes and reduces the whole idea, the whole message of what Jesus is calling us to do as he writes in this particular passage, as he is recorded in this particular passage. It's fascinating that Jesus comes in the first message that he declares as he is publicly now moving in to make known that he is the one who has been promised, that the kingdom is at hand, is to repent 
and to believe the gospel, the two wings by which we are to fly toward heaven. And Martin Luther, as he considers this declaration of Jesus, recognized something that some of us are prone to miss, either because nobody's taught us, or because our nature wants to minimize the need for repentance. The very first theses that Martin Luther, of the 95 that he posted on the doors at Wittenberg, the very first one was this. When the Lord Jesus Christ commanded us to repent, he was desiring or he was willing, he willed that we live our entire lives out in repentance. It's a drastically different message than what most of us are inclined to believe. In other words, while we are inclined to think of repentance as something that is necessary to be used as little as possible as we become better people, Luther is saying, no, what Jesus meant is that we live with repentance as a constant rhythm of our lives. And I believe that Luther was entirely correct. Now, this morning I want to show why that repentance is a necessary rhythm for our lives and really how we can engage in this practice in a way that is not only beneficial but actually leads to joy. For those of you who sometimes have difficulty following because I don't usually do three straight points, you are in luck this morning because not only do I have, not only have three points, I've only got two. They are very easy to follow, or at least to remember, because we might go back and forth a little bit. But if you need to take notes, here are the two points. What repentance is not, what repentance is. So you should be able to remember that at least for the next 20 minutes or so while we're there. What repentance is not, what repentance is. And we're going to begin with what repentance is not. In order to look at that, I want to look at a biblical passage, the passage in Hosea, uh, that is often... um, brought up and used in in training people and instructing people on repentance. And I'm going to actually read from the NIV. The ESV is great and is literal and poetic, but in the NIV with a little bit more elaborated, for those who are not going to be reading along, uh, it gives a better sense of what the mindset was of Israel uh, at the time that they began to uh, rally and return to the Lord. Those of you who need to use the index... Most everybody else does too. Hosea in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets shortly after Daniel, um, but it's a relatively small book, and so I and different Bibles will skip by it very quickly. If you don't want to turn to it, that's fine. Just listen to what happens. We're going to look at this first in two parts. First is Israel, recognizing that they were out of of accord with God. They had taken God for granted. They had um, walked away from God. They were living according to their own ideas, own standards, and as a result, they had experienced the consequences of ungodliness and yet still being called God's people. Hosea 6 verses 1 through 3 is what Israel says. Listen to these beautiful words. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. 
As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. and He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And in this, the leaders of Israel, using this beautifully poetic words, calling all of the people who had been alienated from God to come back and return to their God in order that they might find forgiveness and restoration from God. Now let's hear what God's response to this beauty, these beautiful words. Verse 4. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with my words of my mouth. And then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. We look at the seeming discord or just the tension that's here. It's, it's, it's really rather startling when you consider what's taking place here. The people of Israel, recognizing their wrong, call one another together and through beautifully poetic words said, let's go back to God so that we might be healed. And God says, No. He wasn't impressed with the poetry. He wasn't impressed with their conviction to return to him. He rejects their overture for reconciliation. It would be very easy to look at this passage and say, why? I mean, what's wrong with this? This is a beautiful picture. Isn't this what we are called to do when we find that we are apart from God, is to return to God and return together to God, to trust in God and recognize that God forgives and God heals I mean, there's some really impressive things here that even the contemporary evangelical Christians would benefit from. One is they recognize not only that they were out of accord with God, but they recognize that God who is sovereign is the one who brought the affliction upon them. They recognize what we fail to remember from time to time is that God disciplines those whom he loves. And so that the afflictions that they have, they're not just saying it's a bad time, let's get God to get on our side. They're recognizing that God, because of their disobedience, had brought discipline and punishment upon them and that God's mercy was necessary for them to be restored. I mean, that seems to be pretty profound. And yet God doesn't accept it. The reason God doesn't accept it is because, I'll just make this assertion and we'll see more clearly why in a moment, is that it's not truly repentance. It's a faulty or a false repentance. And yet it's consistent with the best of the repentance that many of us often offer. If repentance is offered at all. So what is repentance? Well, as many of you have been taught, repentance is an acknowledgement of our sin and a turning from our sin back toward God, recognizing our offense and seeking God's mercy that was purchased for us through the blood of Christ. It's totally dependent on the mercy of God rather than anything that we do. It's not simply acknowledging, but it actually turns and seeks another way. It's an admission that God's way is right and our ways often are wrong until our ways are in conformity with God's ways. In many ways, it's complex. There's many different aspects to it. 
Perhaps it's one of the reasons why it's so difficult for us to grasp that and the fact that it just seems so negative. But there are characteristics of genuine repentance that we need to understand in order to, one, understand what the problem was here with the people of Israel and Hosea, and then second, so that we may employ, we may employ proper repentance as part of our lives Ultimately, we would experience the joy that God promises and provides. Now, a few years ago, I ran across a book that was cleverly titled Repentance by a guy named Richard Owen Roberts. For those of you familiar with the charismatic movement, the name it, claim it, this is not Oral Roberts' son. This is somebody totally different, Richard Owen Roberts. That's important. I endorse almost everything Richard Owen Roberts wrote. Go pick up the books. I endorse almost nothing that Richard Roberts has written. So that's my caveat, my commercial for the day. But in this book, the Repentance by Richard Owen Roberts, there are several chapters where he explores repentance in the Old Testament and then repentance in the New Testament. And he has a chapter on the myths of repentance and the marks of repentance and the maxims of repentance. It is a worthwhile and it is a very readable book that can be devotional as well. And while there is tremendous insight, I would just want to take three points that Roberts uses to explain true repentance in a chapter, The uh, Maxims of Repentance. And then what I want to do is look at the repentance that we see from Israel. It probably looks a lot like many of our lives, that we might understand what genuine repentance looks like. Now, the first mark that I want to consider is this, is that, as Roberts points out, and I think is thoroughly biblical, is that true repentance is not what you do for yourself, but what you do for God. I believe that's the first thing that we see is the problem with the repentance that Israel was offering. While they acknowledged they were wrong, the attitude that they had as they brought to the table was simply this, we've suffered long enough. They acknowledged they had wronged God. They acknowledged that they needed God's mercy and forgiveness to be restored. But nowhere are they seeming to be particularly sorrowful for their sins and offenses against God. They're just sad of the situation that they find themselves in. Now they are suffering. And so they said, we've suffered. We've suffered enough. We want the suffering to stop. So let's go back to God. He will forgive us. In other words, they understood an aspect of God's character is that God is a merciful, forgiving, a loving God. And yet is what we call cheap grace when they say essentially this, God will forgive us. That's his job. So we're going to go through the motions for a couple of days here. And on the third day, which is a significant prophecy that they understood and misunderstood at the same time, because the third day is significant throughout the Old Testament, fulfilled in the person of Christ as he rose again on the third day, that gives us the very hope that the promise of the salvation and forgiveness was met in Christ. They just figured a couple of days of suffering and on the third day, God will just forgive us. And they took the cost out entirely the cost of our forgiveness in the death and therefore the resurrection of Christ and the cost to God in the relationship with us and the cost to God of what it pays to cost to redeem a people who have run from him so they just said we've suffered enough and so their mindset at least by the words and the prayer that they offer had really nothing about God it was all for me all to make my life easier, Also, that the punishment will stop, it will go away. Genuine repentance is not what you do for yourself, it's what you do for God. Now, you benefit as well, but it is a recognition that we have offended God. 
that God who is loving is also just and he is also holy, and that our ignoring him, taking him for granted, or transgressing what he's called us to do, pains him. So much that God who is loving does pour out judgment and discipline and wrath. Repentance that we see here that is really not repentance. In one sense, it falls more in the line of a counterfeit to repentance that most of us buy, some theologically, most practically, and it's called penance, which is not repentance. See, penance is when we realize we've done something that we experience punishment for a particular, for amount of time until we have suffered enough. And therefore, we have paid our own debt. Any of you have seen the movie The Mission that came out in the early 80s? It's a classic movie. If you have not seen it, find it on Netflix or Amazon. It's a worthwhile watch. The story is of a people in South America who were being enslaved by the Portuguese government. Main characters are played by Jeremy Irons, who is a missionary priest in South American jungles and Robert De Niro, who's a mercenary that goes out on behalf of the Portuguese government in order to capture the natives, bring them back to Portugal, and then sell them into slavery amongst the people. De Niro is a fierce and tough character in this film. He's good at what he does, and the reason he's good at what he does is because he has no conscience about the fact that he is um, enslaving people or about much of anything else, and second, because he's fearless and his quick reaction is to be a warrior. But as he's on one of his uh, uh, escapades to bring the slaves back, when he returns to Portugal, he finds that his brother has married the woman that he loves. Confronting his brother, it escalates into a fight. De Niro, the warrior, kills his brother and immediately, having remorse, is broken over what he has done. He breaks down. He's jailed, but he's broken down. Jeremy Irons is the priest who is ministering amongst the people. He happens to be in Portugal, seeing that De Niro is in prison, having dealt with him before, knowing full well who he is, redeems him, brings him on the journey that he can be an assistant to or an apprentice to the priests who are ministering. De Niro's faith seems to grow as he realizes that he is hopeless, he is worthless, and he deserves to die and wants to die. Jeremy Irons just puts him through a bunch of rigors, and his job basically is to carry all of the equipment that is necessary for the missionaries at their mission. There's a point in which he's been carrying out a lot of things. He's done a lot of work, and the other priests come to Jeremy Irons and say, we think that he's suffered enough, to which Jeremy Irons responds, but he does not. And until he does, I don't think so either. It's an interesting point because what if Robert De Niro had thought that he had suffered enough already? What if he had thought he had suffered enough just by the fact that he felt bad that he killed his brother? I mean, that would make most of us feel bad, I hope. I know it's Thanksgiving, so some of you might not say so next Friday. But nevertheless, I hope that most of you would feel bad if you killed your brother. And then in a pivotal scene... Soon after that encounter, they're climbing up the side of a mountain. All the priests go up. It's strenuous to get up at all. And yet De Niro's character, he is carrying the weight of everything 
that the missionaries need in a net attached to a rope. As he gets up, a branch slips. He grabs onto something, but the force breaks the rope that he's carrying. The net breaks open, and everything he's carrying to the top of the mountain falls back down to the bottom. And he totally breaks at that point. And at which point he's considered forgiven. That's penance. The idea that we can pay a price, that when we suffer enough, that's significant, sufficient to cover the reality of our sin and offense against God. Not only is it unbiblical, practically it doesn't make sense, even though we live that way. When have we suffered enough? What's the standard? How we feel? Scripture tells us our hearts are deceitful. I mean, if it was up to me, five minutes, that's good, because I don't want to suffer any longer than that, except that I have an overactive conscience, and I have hard enough, difficult enough time believing that I'm forgiven when I am forgiven, much less leaving it to me. And so what if we decide, oh, later on, we should have suffered more? Penance is not only unbiblical, it is, does not work. There's no objective standard, and anyone with any element of conscience recognizes that. It also dishonors God as if there's something we can do to make up for our offense. Real repentance recognizes that our offenses are against God. And we repent by acknowledging our offense to God, just as we do when we are in broken relationship with one another. To not acknowledge that we have hurt somebody else when we have done something makes the restoration of the relationship very difficult and very tense. We recognize and acknowledge what we've done for them so that they know that we understand, so they know that we recognize there was a cost to them. Repentance is turning to God and recognizing that we did something to God. And we repent for his benefit. The mercy we receive becomes ours. That was absent here. I won't go on very long for the other two marks because they're very important, but they're very important nevertheless. With that understanding of the difference between false repentance and true repentance, we also see the second mark of genuine repentance, which is true repentance is not merely of the fruits of sin, but the very roots. In other words, when we see the evidence of sin because of something we have done in our behavior, what we call sin, it's right that we repent of that. But we also need to realize there's a reason that we did whatever it is that we did. And the reason we did whatever we did is because there is sin that is deep down, besetting sin, sin that is within us. The only thing that we are seeing is the fruition, the fruit, the bud of the sin through our actions and our attitudes. We do repent of those because those are offensive to God as well as to whoever we sinned against. But then we don't stop there. We begin to realize there's something deep that's causing me to do the things that I do. And you follow by asking the question, what is it that I need that I acted in this way? What is it that I feel that I need that I have difficulty believing? And we look to not just the fruit, but we look at the root of our sin, and we repent of that as well. Because if I'm a control freak, it's because I do not trust God or that God does not have my best interest at heart. If I am greedy, it's because I feel that I am either in need or I am entitled. Somebody who steals, usually there's a reason behind that. And we need to recognize that our lives are lived out from the depths of what's real within us. Jesus has said the same thing. 
The sin is coming out of us. It's what's deep within us, not just our behavior. Behavior gives us a clue. But real repentance not only starts with the evidence, but then digs deep and repents of the fact that we functionally don't believe, that we functionally want to glorify ourselves, that we function any number of things that I, I don't have any time, I don't have enough time to talk about this morning. But we all have that within us, and we begin to repent of that. We name that sin, which actually depowers it by God's grace. Related to that, the third aspect of true repentance is this. True repentance is not merely turning from what you have done, but turning from what you are. In other words, we live in a behavioristic idea that we are what we do, but God has told us in the, in the Scriptures that we are broken and alienated from Him. And even when we are redeemed and made part of Him, sin is still alive within us. We are declared righteous, but we still are sinners. We are free from the condemnation of the law, and we are being freed for the authority, the power that it has, that we can now say no that we never could before. But the reason we have to be freed is because by nature, we are sinners. And so when we repent, we do it for the sake of God. We look at the deep brokenness within us, and we repent not only of the actions, but of our very brokenness, that we are not what we ought to be. And even though we were born this way, we still bear responsibility because we carry out our rebellion, our rejection, our ignorance of God day in and day out. And it feels very oppressive to say, wow. And yet the reality is, and as Camper often reminds us as we confess in church, it's incredibly freeing. Because we're reminded it's not the price that we pay, even if we could pay, which we can't. But it's the grace of God given to us that even as we sang this morning, that the only thing he requires is that we recognize our need of him, how we have offended him. And that we need him, and he has provided, which then points us not only to the issue of repentance, but it reminds us faith and repentance go together, always. That repentance deepens faith in our value, and faith shows us that we have need to repent. So as we have this rhythm, finish this up today, and I'm encouraging you to cultivate a rhythm of repentance in your life. I hope it's obvious from the very beginning illustration that I'm not telling you to simply cultivate repentance in your life. That would be like taking, realizing I have the broken left wing and taking the good right wing off and then putting that on the left. I will no longer tilt to the left and crash that way, I will now tilt to the right and crash that way. Because we still need the two wings. But throughout the Scripture, faith and repentance always go together. And the reason I'm focusing on the repentance aspect of Jesus' command is we already get the faith part. Many of us lack in the discipline, lack in the rhythm of repentance, which must accompany our faith. When we experience that, which seems like it is overwhelming, we realize that actually God has given us a gift because repentance reminds us of what we believe, that in our brokenness, God has given us Christ to pay the price for us. We believe all the more when we recognize we have need. And we fulfill the very simplest way of expressing what it means to live the Christian life. As Paul reminded the Colossians, so I'll end in reminding you and reminding myself as I need to daily. Paul was saying, how do I live the Christian life? Paul says very simply this, just as you received him, so live in him. How did we receive Christ? 
by recognizing we are sins, repenting of that, and believing the hope that was offered to us in Jesus Christ, in the gospel, the very thing that Jesus said when he began the ministry, the kingdom is God is here. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel that is yours in Jesus Christ. How do we live in Christ? You repent and you believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with those two wings continually being cultivated, preaching the gospel to yourself, you will find that you're not crashing, but you're soaring. May God give us that gift. Father, we do pray with thanksgiving for all that you have done. And I pray, thank you this morning, that you would continue to be at work within us, that we would not fear repentance, but recognize it as a gift that you've given to us, that we may be strengthened and renewed and rejoice in you. Father, help us to recognize that in your glory we find our joy, that we may be free to labor for your glory. Bless us with this grace of faith and repentance that we may soar. We pray in Christ.